sickbed. God, that you would be her peace and that you would be her comfort. I pray for Marie and her family, Lord, that you would soothe their hurting hearts. And Lord, we just pray for your will to come to pass in this family, Lord, that your grace would reign. And lastly, I lift up Victor, and I pray for his financial struggles. Pray that you would lead him to a babysitter for June and the legal matters that he's dealing with. And so, Father, we just once again thank you for this privilege of praying for your people. Pray, Lord, that we would forever be found faithful, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 15, picking back up in verse 21. I'll read to verse 21 to 23, although we'll be going to the end of the chapter. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear, to bear the Lord's, to bear his cross, and they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And so Pilate has presented the scourged Lord and asked the crowd to behold the man, that they would consider the man. And what we need to consider, especially in the remainder of this chapter, are the people and the events that are going on. Because again, this is what the Old Testament has been pointing to for the previous to this 4,000 years. And even 2,000 years after the fact, this is what we look back. This has changed and altered the course of history and the course of humanity. And so God's got plenty to say of this time, as this time was what is dear to our lives here on earth and our eternal lives as well. And so we have the picture of our Lord, all covered in blood, but perfectly pure. Then there is the crowd, the crowd of people who are around, and there's different people who are in different places in their relationship with God, but their blood, well, their blood is both on their hands and on their heads on their hands, and that all are responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. On their heads, as all who kill Christ are responsible for their own lives. And so we see this humanity in actuality is all represented to those, represented by those who are in that area at that time, but also throughout all of history. Jesus' ministry has drawn crowds and multitudes Up to a point, we saw in John chapter 6 that there was a great departure, but what we have to remember, it's all of humanity that stands before the cross at this time. There was a great debate in whose fault the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was when the movie The Passion of Christ came out. Some of the people, some Jews were upset because it looked like they were blaming the Jews, and, and then others put the blame on Rome, and it was all of our fault. It was all of our fault because Christ had to pay that price because we couldn't pay it. Christ had to die upon the cross, and we'll, we'll see the violence of the cross, but that doesn't even scratch the surface uh, spiritually because that violence represents the violence that we would be experiencing for all of eternity if not for Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, if you'll notice, none of the Gospels go into great detail concerning the physical scourging, suffering, or the dying, because it's all about the spiritual. It's all about what was spiritually happening, and the physical violence is just a picture of that spiritual reality. 
Again, we need to see the miracle that is involved here as God is taking sin upon himself for the very first time. For the very first time, he's experiencing the effects of separation that sin brings. He'll be experiencing even death. And so it's just an utter miracle of what is happening here. But again, as I said, it's the ultimate expression of love. It's the expression that love that God has for humanity that he would do this and display himself doing this so that we would see and that we would know. And so the first person that we see here is Simon, a Cyrenian, again in verse 21, and they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now it's estimated by those who estimate such things, at least the commentaries tell us, that this cross could have weighed as much as 200 pounds, so it wasn't an easy thing to do. The Lord would have been reduced in his strength because of the scourging and all, and so it be a hard thing for the condemned man to do. And so this man passing by, they lay hold on him and compel him to carry the cross. And so Cyrenian, Cyrenian would be from the area of Cyrene, which is a Greek settlement, which is today modern-day Libya, probably a town, in town. He was probably there for the Passover, and he was probably a Gentile, a God-fearer. Why is he referred to as the father of Alexander and Rufus? Well, keep in mind who's pinning this gospel is Mark. Mark, it is believed, he pinned the gospel in Rome. And in Rome, there would be a Christian community and probably well-known to one another. Well, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul, when he's writing that epistle, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Is it the same one? I don't know. But what Mark is writing here is, he's speaking of Simon a Cyrenian and the follower of Alexander and Rufus as if there was common knowledge of who they were within the church. And that what that really just brings up to me is the possibility that this man, this man became born again through his experience of carrying this cross. He probably, well, he did. He had a close-up view of Jesus Christ and speaking of the Spirit, and the Spirit would give him understanding. Very possible that not only he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but so did his family as well. And so, why did Jesus need help, not so much physically speaking, but spiritually speaking? Why did Jesus need help carrying the cross? Why would God need help really doing anything? Well, I think the main reason is, is because it's not Jesus' cross. It's our cross. Again, it's the cross that we were all destined for. We were all deserving of that from the first instance of our sin. There's none that are right in the sight of God according to what we're able to do. And again, even those who previously died in faith, we've seen in previous lessons, they couldn't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. They were in that Abraham's bosom, that good side of Hades, but they couldn't even enter into the presence of God until the sin condition was dealt with. And it should cause us to remember that, wow, we were headed before Christ, and I'm talking about before we received Christ as our Savior, we were headed towards our cross. We were headed towards our, figuratively speaking, but in reality, our our own crucifixion, our our death, and, and a permanent death. But Christ altered the course of history. And what altered the course of your history is the day that somebody spoke the gospel. 
and, and even narrowing, narrowing it down was the day that you understood the gospel, you digest the gospel, and you submitted yourself to the gospel. Because again, it's all about that relationship of the Spirit ministering to you through the Word of God. And it's essential that we understand that. It wasn't about the raising of a hand. It's never about the walking down of an aisle or answering an, an altar call. Not that there's anything bad with that, but you have to see within your own life that there was the knowledge of myself as a sinner who was condemned. I had the sentence of death upon me. And, and there's Jesus, and I think I talked about this last week, but just way a reminder of the picture of what is happening in the crucifixion of Christ. Because, again, anybody could be nailed to a cross. But what was going on here with Christ? Well, we know that Christ is the Son of God. has to be the Son of God, or if he's not, then since all were sinners and fallen short of the glory of God, then he was just dying for his own sins. But that wasn't the case. How do we know that he died for sin? Well, if he's truly God, he's never died. Something had to change. And the only way that death has come upon this earth is because of sin. Well, Jesus couldn't have died because he didn't commit any sins unless sins were placed upon him. So I know that the sins of the world were placed upon Christ just simply because he died. And if he stayed dead, then we would never know the reality of the situation. But he didn't stay dead. Matter of fact, he came back to life. What does that tell me? That tells me that he achieved victory over the sin condition. And again, these were our sins that were placed upon him. But nonetheless, he received victory. And as he came back to new life, now we can have, we can have a confidence in, in what occurred upon the cross. And I see that as Christ was able to overcome sin, that sin that was placed upon him was my sin. He overcame my sin. That whoever should believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so this was not Christ's Christ cross. This is our cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And also there's a deeper picture here of what is to follow in Jesus' death, a reminder of an earlier lesson in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will forsake it. You see the picture then, taking up our cross and following him. Again, his cross is the cross, all of our crosses, but nonetheless, where our sins were nailed to, my cross, the cross that I am to take up, is the place where my flesh is nailed to. That's the place where I make his priorities of my life a greater priority than I have made of the things of my life. That I seek out God's will, and it's his will that I seek to bring to fruition in my life. Verses 22 through 23 And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. He did not take it. I mentioned last week in the paratorium, we were there. We stood on the stones where Christ stood as Christ was being scourged, as he was being mocked and made fun of. The Mount Golgotha, you walk from the paratorium to where it's believed that Golgotha is. It's pretty much a bus stop today. But you stand there and you can, it definitely makes sense that somebody 
who was judged in that area would make that journey and you could see how his cross would be put upon that hill that call it a mountain but that hill and it would it would kind of hang over that city and so there's the mindset if you come up against Rome this is what happens to you but with Christ what is being displayed once again well to bring it into context for today it's the ultimate in Valentine's gift it's the ultimate expression of love that God would allow these things to happen, that he would willfully go. It was something that he did in obedience, but it was also described as the joy that was set before him in Romans chapter tw- I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Why would it be described as joy? Because you were on his mind, because he understood that this is going to open the gates of heaven, and mankind, those who are of Jesus Christ, will have fellowship with God forever. Verses 22 and 23 again, and they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Why would he not take this concoction? Because this concoction was used as a sedative. It was used to keep the prisoner at bay as they would drive the nails into, more than likely into his wrist and into his, his feet. Why would Jesus not take it? Because he needed to have... It's God's desire that he would have all of his senses about him and he would experience, again, he's taking sin upon him. And the the idea is, is that as he has this and he's receiving the judgment, not receiving judgment from Rome, not receiving judgment from the Jews, but he's receiving what was due to you. What was due you? You're not to be judged by the Jews. You're not to be judged by Rome. You'll be judged by the Father. And he is taking that him and his senses were to be open to the whole of what was happening verses 24 through 26 and when they crucified him they divided his garments casting lots for them to determine what every man should take now it was the third hour and they crucified him and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the jews Well, again, comparing gospel with gospel, we understand the magnitude of this this little sign that was placed there. I think Pilate thought he was being cute, but in actuality, this is the sign of signs as it speaks volumes. Again, as I said, that cross was placed upon that hill because it was meant to be a public spectacle. The sign would display the charges against the condemned. And the idea is, if you do this, what this guy did, this is what's going to happen to you. And so the sign, the sign was really written in the three major languages of the known world of that day. Hebrews, so the Jews would understand what was being done. Latin, for the Romans, it would also validate, as far as the Roman mind, what was being done because he broke the law. And then Greek for everyone else. Greek was the common language of the day. But really, what was the caption of the cross telling us? You need to see what figuratively is happening here as well. As far as Jesus and who Jesus is, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, well, the language in Hebrew that said the King of the Jews, this is really the language of religion and morality. Is Jesus the Lord of your spiritual life? Again, this is describing the reason why he is upon the cross. And I can remember, I've mentioned it before many times, but my past religious life, it was just all simple routine. Uh, My parents brought me to church. It was the longest hour of the week. 
You'd sit there daydreaming. As I became older, I added looking at the girls that would walk by, um, wondering when this is going to be over. I knew the last part of the Mass because that means he was wrapping it up finally. But it was just an act of endurance. There was no relationship, and in actuality, there was no understanding of what was going on as well. Not so much the church's fault, but more my, church, my fault because I was there. But again, we see that it's Jesus who is the author of true religion and true morality, that he is to be the Lord of our life. In Greek, the language of science, culture, and philosophy is Jesus the basis of your worldview. Does your thought process start at the word of God? I don't know when I'm going to do it. We're almost at the end of Mark here. We've got a couple of more weeks. Um, Sunday morning, I was thinking of inserting it on Sunday morning, and so I don't know, I'm going to pray about it a little bit more, but teaching through the book of Genesis once again. And I just taught it at the Bible college and going through the book of Genesis and seeing creation and seeing these things that are just so rich and these proofs that God has given us as far as that he is truly creator. And since he's creator, he's God of the universe as he spoke these things into existence. And it speaks undeniably of of who he is and, and what he has done and what he is able to do. And it was just such a neat thing to, to teach that class and, and, and just to have that question and answer with the kids who were in there and to see lights going off. This one girl, they, they require everybody to have a Bible, a wide margin Bible. And their idea is, is that the notes you take in class, you write on these wide margins, and it's pretty wide, and, and then you're able to have the information as you go through in your future devotions or if you have an opportunity to share the word. And I, it was towards the end, and this one girl, I was looking at it, and she had, you know, were the text of the Bible, and she had all this verbiage written all around it. And I go, man, you've taken a lot of notes. I'm thinking about, what did I say? Hopefully it was good. <laughs> Hopefully it was right. No, I'm kidding. Um, she goes, oh, yeah, look. And, and she's got the first four pages of her Bible. They're blank pages, and they're all filled in. And it's just a, it was just, you know, an amazing thing to me but it just lent towards the, the remembrance of the importance of every page that is on the Bible, but how much more so when it comes to... Because, again, how, how is our belief attacked? It's attacked through science, culture, and philosophy. Those are the main fronts in which the battle for our belief is fought. It's these areas that we have to have at least some sort of working knowledge to the reality, or at least what the... Well, the reality of science, culture, and philosophy, what the world believes in those areas, and how the Bible accentuates them, because we're not going to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us unless we have that knowledge. And again, you don't have to be an expert in it, but I do need to understand how God meets us there. And I really believe, well, again, that, that, that sign upon the cross that was given the charges, it's really given us the reality that there's Jesus, this person nailed under that sign, and he is our Lord of our spiritual life. He is the Lord of our worldview. And then Latin, this is the language of law and good government. And again, we've seen our country and so many others as they depended upon the Lord, at least recognized the Lord, as they brought the Lord into their process, those nations would do well. And we again, once again must consider how far away our country has gotten and we see the results of it. It's just a reality that lends towards the truthfulness of who Christ is. 
And so we see this simple sign is not so simple. Matter of fact, it speaks volumes. Matter of fact, one more thing here we are told of this one sign written three ways. Well, in actuality, there was another sign there as well, one we're not told of until later in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, all of your, all of your sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he was taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. And so the idea is, as far as, since you're a born-again believer, somebody condemning you because of, well, the breaking of the law or the sins that you've committed, they've been put to death. They were nailed to the cross. Now, Pilate nailed the other sign to the cross. As far as the law, the law is what the Father nailed to the cross. As we see Christ crucified upon the cross, as we see his death there, we're also reminded that that's all that was necessary. Yes, through the law, all will perish. But because of Christ's sacrificial death, because of the grace of God, all of us will truly live. Verses 27 and 28. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And so again, that just reminds us of the importance of what's going on as far as proof of Christ. There were all of the prophecies which needed to be fulfilled, and we see that in the scriptures, prophecy upon prophecy being fulfilled, which reminds us there's ones in the future to be fulfilled. Christ, who he said he was. There were the miracles that occurred. There was his death upon the cross, but again, a lot of people died upon the cross, but there was his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his sending of the Holy Spirit, which we still experience today. But one of the prophecies that were fulfilled, again in verse 28, and so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And so we have on that... that, that um, that mountain, three crosses. There's something about the picture of those three crosses. I don't know if it's just because of tradition that's ingrained, but we were having a play and we needed three crosses. And they were to be, I don't know, the tallest was to be over six feet and the others were a little bit shorter than that. And the guy who was kind of putting everything together just couldn't do it. He couldn't build it. He didn't have the ability. And I remember very upset about it. And I go, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And so one day I had a free day and I went back in the warehouse and I got some four by eight beams and I cut them all and nailed them all together and set them all up and everything. And just looking at that, and there's just something special looking at the crosses. And, and, and then I remember that day I told them, hey, Jim, I, I, I got the crosses made for you. Let, let's go check it out. And we went in the warehouse and the lights were off and I turned on the lights and they were right there. And I remember he just kind of froze just looking at the crosses. And he started to cry. And it was just kind of an amazing... And I go, what's the matter with you? <laughs> but you could just see that there's just that sight, and, and, and it just overwhelms us. Now, we're not to get hung up on a cross and make an idol about it, but when we understand what occurred upon that, 
that, that mount that day, we understand the magnitude again of the love that God has for us. But again, that, that's even accentuated even so much more in these two men that were sacrificed with Jesus. Because each cross, each cross holds one man. Two of these men have sin in them. And what I mean by that, they have a sinful nature. Again, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These same men also have sin on them. So to have sin in you is to have the ability and the desire to sin. To have sin on you is to be seen as a sinner. And so since they were captured and they were being crucified, there's that outward expression of that inward reality. But then you have Jesus who is set apart. He has no sin in him. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. But what is happening here, he who has no sin in him is about to take sin upon him. Galatians 3.13-14, through 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then in the midst of all of this, an interesting interesting thing happens when Christ says to this man, and again, we have to look at parallel accounts of the Gospels, but when he tells that one man, Today you will be with me in paradise, an absolute miracle occurs. Now, instead of just having Christ and the other two guys, now you've got three different people there. Same people, but three different situations. You now have on the cross a man with sin in him, sinful nature, and sin upon him, seen as the sinner that he is. On the other cross, you have the Lord with sin on him. He's taken our sin upon him, but none in him. He has no sinful nature. And the miracle is this third man. On that third cross, you have the redeemed with sin in him, but no longer, at least from the standpoint of God, sin upon him. Because it's at that point that God has chosen to see him just as if he's never sinned. I've spoken of this at length, usually use the example of my sinful grandchildren that I choose to not recognize as sinners. But the reality is I understand the magnitude of the sinner that I am. And I understand, because of that, I understand the magnitude of salvation, that all of my sins have been done away with. That at that point, and there was guilt. There was, there was a guilt that I had. There was a guilt that religion kind of dumped upon me. God is mad and you better not make him any matter. But then I heard the preaching of the gospel and there was the freedom of that. There was the release of guilt. There was the understanding that although there's sin in me, I still have this sinful nature. No longer in the sight of God am I seen as that sinner. It's that which tried the Adam technique of hiding from God, but you can't hide from God. You try to cover it, but you can't cover it. But Christ has washed my sins completely away as far as the east is from the west. And so even as Jesus spoke those words today that you will be with me in paradise, understand the magnitude of the love that existed. Understand the power of the miracle that was transpiring in that man at that moment, that would redeem him. Again, redeem as he was going towards the trash heap, if you will. God God pulled him out of that fire. God now has placed him in fine robes, and he today, even right now, is in the presence of God. 
And again, it's an amazing thing. And then see the picture. This guy's hung upon the cross. And works-based salvation, it kind of throws that out the window. I was arguing with somebody about baptism, how they were saying baptism was necessary for salvation, and I used this man as an illustration. Jesus didn't take him off the cross and baptize him. He just received the grace of God, the, the, the power of God that is able to deal with the sinful nature of mankind. His sin has been taken off him, and his sin now, Jesus, as he's there, taken upon the sins of the world, adds that man's sin to his load. And he takes this man's sin away as if they never happened. 29 through 32. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking amongst themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Why Jesus couldn't come down? Well, the only thing that the power of God will never overcome is the love of God. And Jesus could have come down off of that cross, but it was his love, the knowledge again of the door, the gates of heaven that are being unlocked, and the fellowship with mankind that he is going to have. If you recall, it's the love of God that holds him to the cross and also has been displayed to us that because he loved us first, we in turn are able to love him. What happens if Jesus saves himself? If Jesus saves himself, then he doesn't save you. Remember back in the temptations of Christ, what the devil was actually trying to do was trying to tempt Christ with the ability to avoid the cross. And again, it wasn't so much the cross, but it was God taking sin upon him. If he does that, the devil wins. If Christ comes down off of that cross, then the devil wins. But we know he emerged victorious, emerged victorious over the devil, and he emerged victorious in our lives as well. Mark chapter 15, verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him revile him. Man does not, nor will he ever, see and believe. It's a Christian concept. You don't see and believe. You believe and then you see. You have to enter in to see the beauty of the Lord. Why? Because that's the basis of what faith is. I mean, we're kind of, you know, show me and then maybe I'll believe, but it just doesn't work that way. And we have to be of that mindset as we have opportunity to share the word. It's about the sharing the word and rendering the invitation, but it's them who are going to have to exercise the faith. We want to exercise the faith for people. We want to drag people into the kingdom of heaven, but you can't do that. It's all you can do is present the invitation. It's got to be, once again, as I said before, the spirit who works through that as the love of God is displayed, that God uses that to draw mankind into himself. But until mankind enters into that relationship, he's never going to understand, he's never going to know. And so as far as just simply getting into an argument with somebody, that's useless. But we display the gospel in Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus said as much on this concept in John chapter 11, verse 40. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And again, I use the example in the past of the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
you look at the badger skins and the ram skins and these things that covered it, you would think, what's the big deal? And you would never know what the big deal was of that tabernacle of this Jew, the God of the Jews, until you would enter in and see the gold and the silver and the bronze and the tapestry and just the beauty of everything in there. But again, you have to enter in. And none of us truly understood the beauty of the Lord until we entered into that relationship. And what does Jesus do in our lives through our faithfulness? He continues to reveal more and more and more. Verses 33 through 37. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled the sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered, to it, offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And so why the darkness? Well, outwardly, man is seen as killing Christ, and God has given man a taste of a Christless existence. Remember, the description of hell is outer darkness. And as Christ is taking sin upon himself, what is sin doing? Well, the picture is it's extinguishing the light of the world. If Jesus ever committed any kind of sin, then man is in outer darkness for all of eternity. Well, he hasn't committed a sin here, but we have this picture. And it's, we keep in mind who this picture is directed to. It's directed towards the Jewish mind. Now, as far as darkness, he would be reminded in Egypt what occurred before the Passover lamb was killed. Three days, three hours here, but three days of darkness that would correspond with these three hours of darkness. Then what came after that? The death of the firstborn. And so we've got this rich picture of a Passover, which they're celebrating currently at that time. They would be speaking of those three days of darkness. They would be speaking of the death of the firstborn. And what, that, what occurred so many years before and what it was pointing to is now occurring before their very eyes. And so there's that darkness that happens as Christ takes the sins of the world upon him and the firstborn if you will of the father is about to suffer death notice the light comes back after the third hour when God sacrifices his firstborn the lamb of God who doesn't just cover the sins of the world this is the lamb of God who now has taken away the sins of the world whoever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life Verse 37 through 39, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last breath. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and the son of Joses and Salome and also following him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The veil? The veil is the curtain. It's believed it was a hand width wide, about six inches wide and 40 feet high. It would be like tearing multiple... Does anybody remember what a phone book is? Multiple phone books, tearing those apart, or just take your 
cell phone and tear that apart for an illustration, I guess. This is the curtain that separated the holy place from the holies of holies. The holy of holies would be that place in the Jewish mind where God dwells. It would be that place that the, only the high priest could go in once a year on Yom Kippur. It's that place that all others were forbidden. And the idea behind this curtain that we're told was torn from top to bottom is that it's now open to all of humanity. Now, because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, all of humanity is invited to come into the throne room of God. The problem today, man through his religion and his legalism keeps trying to sew up that which God has torn by grace but it is that which is open to all of humanity. Verse 42 through 47, Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, Joseph brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and even Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. The apostles, obviously, were 12 men, and they had everything to do with Jesus while he was alive. They gave of their lives and their futures to him, but now they're nowhere to be seen with the exception of the apostle John. Joseph, and we're told there's this Joseph Arimathea, but there was also Nicodemus with him. We're told it in the, um, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. These two men who had nothing to do with Jesus while he was alive, they're now willing to step forward. Why? why would they now be willing to step forward and put their lives and their position and basically everything at risk? It had to be because of the cross of Christ. Now, when Jesus was upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's doing is he's quoting from Psalm 22. And the idea is, again, for the Jewish mind, that he would refer back and realize exactly what was happening. Psalm 22, that spoke in detail of crucifixion before crucifixion even existed. And I would have to imagine that Joseph of Arimathea and very possibly Nicodemus, they did that. They did that. So why would these men make plans for Jesus' burial? Remember, he had this tomb hewn out of stone. It says it was a family tomb, but nobody had ever used it. I would imagine it was for this purpose. Why? Because they believed. Why would these men expose themselves as disciples now, especially with Jesus being dead? Because they believed. They searched the scriptures, and now they understand. Why would they defile themselves from celebrating the Passover? If you touch a dead body, you can't celebrate the Passover. They don't need to celebrate the Passover anymore because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's now been sacrificed. And again, all of that of the past is no longer pertinent to the glory that we have in the future. The reason why they would give of themselves and expose themselves as believers is the same reason why we should be doing the same because we believe. Kind of went through this very rapidly here tonight. But again, just a reminder for most of us of exactly what occurred. The people who were there and the situation as it was unfolding, it was all for the purpose of my, of your, of our, of our salvation. 
Again, Valentine's, it was the ultimate. It's the expression of love that God has. Jesus said, if I be crucified, I will draw all men unto myself. How does he draw all men unto himself? As he's upon that cross, it's the expression of the love of God. It's an attractant to all of us to come and to see, to understand and to know what has occurred upon that cross. It's that which you'll never understand the beauty of it until you enter in by faith. But once you enter in by faith, all of the mysteries of the kingdom of God as they have been revealed by God will be made available to us all. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. That event that happened so long ago continues to change lives even today. Father, you've given us the detail that is necessary for our belief to either believe or to strengthen our belief. And it's these things, God, that I pray that we would embrace. Lord, you met the world where it's at, that sign that was upon the cross, so simple but speaks such volumes. We, we've seen, Father, just, just so many different things as, as Christ was crucified, as the blood flowed, and it reminded us that that was what was necessary because I'm, because we are sinners. And so, Father, I pray that we would hold these things dear. Even this Sunday, as we're going to be celebrating communion, it refers us back to what has happened so that we would once again realize that I have strength for today to continue to push forward in all that you have called us to do. And so, Lord, we just thank you and praise you. We just give of our hearts to you truly this day that, God, you would simply be glorified through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Well, keep in prayer this Saturday. We've got, I believe it's 37 couples that are coming to our Valentine's banquet and just pray what God would do that day. Um, We could use some help stacking the chairs, guys, if you're able to, in groups of five. And then uh, we're going to be setting the tables up tonight just so they can come and decorate them tomorrow. Sal will be out here in a minute, and he's not afraid to tell you what to do. So we'll get that handled. God bless you guys. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. I will sing again. You are so good to me.
I will sing again. Father God, we do today just re realize the love that you showered upon us. Father, you died upon that cross, but Lord, you gave us eternal life. So what a perfect love story. Father, we love you. And all God's people said, amen. amen.